Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode six of Mongols and Mamluks called The Victory of the Mamluks. In the last episode, we heard how the Mongols sacked Baghdad in 1258, which was the effective capital of Islam in the Middle Ages, a magnificent city with a million inhabitants at times and the centre of Islamic culture and learning, famously with 26 great libraries and countless beautiful buildings. The Mongol army was led by the great Mongol Khan's brother Hulagu and it looked as if Islam was about to be destroyed. So what did the Crusaders make of this? Well, there were essentially mixed feelings amongst the Christian Europeans about the Mongols. The French King Louis IX, who'd led the disastrous Seventh Crusade, seriously hoped to make an alliance with the Mongols against Islam. But the Crusaders in Outremer were far less enthusiastic. They could see that if the Mongols defeated the Muslims, they would control the Middle East. And although the Mongols certainly preferred Christianity to Islam because of the prevalence of the Nestorian church in Asia, it was clear to them that they would become the subjects of the Mongols rather than the Mongols becoming Christian converts and subjects of the Crusaders, which seemed to be the rather naive hope of Louis IX. Therefore, the Crusaders didn't rush to help the Mongols, although the Armenian king Hetum did join them. But the Mongols were not the only new power in the Middle East. The Mamluks had seized control of Egypt after the Seventh Crusade, and they were professional soldiers who were also nominally slaves, but they had turned the tables on their masters and become the new ruling dynasty in Egypt. And as you will hear, they were now a powerful force to be reckoned with. So we rejoin the narrative at the moment when it looked as if the Mongols were poised to destroy Islam. As before, I'll read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. In September 1259, the great Khan's brother Hulagu led the Mongol army out for the conquest of northwest Syria. Kitbuka led the vanguard, Baichu, the right wing, another favourite general, Sunjak, the left wing, while Hulago himself commanded the centre. He advanced through Nizabin, Haran and Edessa to Bayrek, where he crossed the Euphrates. The city of Saruj attempted to resist him and was sacked. Early in the new year, the Mongol army closed in around Aleppo. As its garrison refused to surrender, the city was attacked on the 18th of January. The Sultan and Nasir Yusuf was at Damascus when the storm broke. He'd hoped that the presence of his son at Hulagu camp would avert danger. When he found out that he was wrong, he made the still more humiliating move of offering to accept the rule of the Mamluks of Egypt. They promised him help but were in no hurry to provide it. In the meantime, he gathered an army outside Damascus and summoned his cousins of Hama and Karak to his aid. But while he waited there, some of his Turkish officers began to plot against him. He discovered their plans in time and they fled to 
Egypt, taking with them one of his brothers. Their defection so weakened his army that he gave up all hope of going to the rescue of Aleppo. Aleppo was bravely defended by Anasir Yusuf's uncle, Turanshah, but after six days of bombardment, the walls crumbled and the Mongols poured into the town. As elsewhere, the Muslim citizens were given over to be massacred and the Christians were spared apart from some of the Orthodox whose church had not been recognised in the heat of the battle. The citadel held out for four more weeks under Turin Shah. When at last it fell, Hulagu showed himself to be unexpectedly clement. Turin Shah was spared because of his age and his bravery and his followers were left untouched. A vast hoard of treasure fell into the conqueror's hands. Hulagu allotted Aleppo to the former emir of Homs, al-Ashraf, who had had the foresight to come as a client to the Mongol camp a few months before. Mongol advisers and a Mongol garrison were provided to keep him in control. The fortress of Harenk was next on the road from Aleppo to Antioch and it had to be punished for refusing to surrender unless Hulagu's word was guaranteed by a Muslim. When it had been captured with the usual massacre, Hulagu came to the frontier of Antioch. The king of Armenia and his son-in-law, the prince of Antioch, visited his camp to pay him homage. The Armenian king Hetum had already provided him with auxiliaries and had been rewarded with some of the spoil from Aleppo, while the Seljuk princes had been ordered to retrocede to him their father's conquests in Cilicia. Beaumont was also rewarded for his deference. Various towns and forts that had belonged to the Muslims since Saladin's day, including Latakia, were given back to the Christian principality of Antioch. To the Crusaders at Acre, Beaumont of Antioch's subservience to the Mongols seemed disgraceful. Venetian influence was still paramount in the Crusader kingdom, and the Venetians were on good commercial terms again with Muslim Egypt. Their interest depended on the trade from the Far East, travelling by the southern route up the Persian Gulf or the Red Sea. They watched with growing concern the Mongol caravan routes across Central Asia to the Black Sea, where the Genoese, with their alliance with the Byzantine, were strengthening their control. The government at Acre looked round for a protector. It was known that Charles of Anjou, the French king's brother, had Mediterranean ambitions and was already intriguing for the Sicilian throne. An anxious letter was sent in May 1260 to describe the dangers of the Mongol advance and to beg him to intervene. By the time that the letter was written, the Mongols were the masters of Damascus, for the Sultan and Nasir Yusuf made no attempt to defend his capital. On the news of the fall of Aleppo and the approach of a Mongol army, he fled to Egypt to take refuge with the Mamluks. Then he changed his mind and was captured by the Mongols as he rode northwards again. The Muslim leader Hama sent a delegation to Halagu in February 1260, offering him the key of the city. A few days later, the notables of Damascus followed suit. On the 1st of March, Kitbuka entered Damascus at the head of a Mongol army. With him were the Christian king of Armenia and the Christian prince of Antioch. The citizens of the ancient capital of the Caliphate saw for the first time for six centuries 
Three Christian rulers ride in triumph through their streets. The citadel, however, held out against the invaders for a few weeks, but was captured on the 6th of April. With the three great cities of Baghdad, Aleppo and Damascus fallen, it seemed that the end of Islam in Asia had arrived. In Damascus, as everywhere else in Western Asia, the Mongol conquest meant the resurgence of the local Christians. Kitbuka, as a Christian himself, made no secret of his sympathies. For the first time since the 7th century, the Muslims of inner Syria found themselves a repressed minority. They burned for revenge. During the spring of 1260, Kitbuka sent detachments to occupy Nablus and Gaza, though they never reached Jerusalem itself. The Crusaders were thus completely surrounded by Mongols. The Mongol authorities had no intention of attacking the Crusader kingdom, provided that it showed them sufficient deference. The wiser Crusaders were ready to avoid provocation, but they could not control their hotheads. The most irresponsible of the barons was Julian, Lord of Sidon and Beaufort, a large, handsome man, but self-indulgent and foolish, with nothing of the subtle intelligence of his grandfather Reynald. His extravagance had already forced him to pledge Sidon to the Templars, from whom he had borrowed vast sums, and his bad temper had involved him in a quarrel with Philip of Tyre, who was his half-uncle. He had married one of King Hetum's daughters, but his father-in-law had no influence over him. The wars between the Mongols and the Muslims seemed to him to offer a good opportunity for a raid from Beaufort into the fertile Bekas. But Kit Booker was not going to have the newly established Mongol order upset by raiders. He sent a small troop under a nephew of his to punish the crusaders. Julian then summoned his neighbours to his aid and they ambushed and slew the nephew. Kit Booker then angrily sent a larger army which penetrated into Sidon and ravaged the town, though the castle of the sea was saved by Genoese ships from Tyre. But both the crusaders and the Muslims were saved by an unexpected event. On the 11th On the 11th of August 1259, the great Khan Monka had died while campaigning with his brother Kublai in China. His sons were young and untried. The army in China therefore pressed for the succession of Kublai. But Monka's youngest brother, Arik Boga, controlled the homeland, including Karakorum and the central treasury of the empire, and he desired the throne for himself. After several months of manoeuvring and discovering who was his friend, each of the two brothers held a Kurultai, or Great Council, in the spring of 1260, which elected him as Supreme Khan. Arik Boga was supported by most of his imperial relatives who were in Mongolia, while Kublai had the stronger support amongst the generals. Neither Kurultai was strictly legal, as all the branches of the family were not represented. Neither side was prepared to wait until Hulagu and the Princes of the Golden Horde, or even of the House of Jagatai, were informed and sent their delegations. Hulagu himself favoured Kublai, although his son was of Arik Boga's party, while Berka, Khan of the Golden Horde, sympathised with Arik Boga. It was only the end of 1261 that Kublai finally crushed Arik Boga. In the meantime, Hulagu cautiously remained close to his eastern frontier, ready to move into Mongolia should it become necessary. 
With these preoccupations, Hulagu was obliged to withdraw many of his troops from Syria as soon as Damascus was taken. Kidbuka was left to govern the country with a greatly reduced command. Unfortunately for the Mongols, their advance into Palestine provoked the one great unbeaten Muslim power, the Mamluks of Egypt. And the Mamluks were now in a fit state to take up the challenge. The first Mamluk sultan, Ibek, had been unsure of his position to legitimise himself, he had not only married the dowager sultana Sajjah Adur, but had appointed an infant Ayubite prince as co-sultan. But the little Al-Ashraf Musa counted for nothing and soon was found to be a useless expense. And in 1257, Ibek quarrelled with the sultana. She was not prepared to be insulted by an upstart. And on the 15th of April, she arranged for his murder by his eunuchs as he was taking his bath. His death almost provoked a civil war, some of the Mamluks crying for vengeance against the dowager, others supporting her as a symbol of legitimacy. Eventually, her enemies won. On the 2nd of May 1257, she was beaten to death, while Ibek's 15-year-old son, Nur ad-Din Ali, was made sultan. But the youth neither represented a respected dynasty, nor had himself the personality of a leader. In December 1259, he was deposed by one of his father's former comrades, Saif ad-Din Qutuz, who became sultan in his place. On his accession, various Mamluks, such as Baibars, who had fled to Damascus from dislike of Ibek, returned to Egypt. Early in 1260, Hulagu sent an embassy to Egypt to demand the sultan's submission. Kutuz put the ambassador to death and prepared to meet the Mongols in Syria. It was at this moment that news of Monka's death and of the civil war in Mongolia obliged Hulagu to remove the greater part of his army away to the east. The troops left with Kutbuka were considerably fewer than those which Kutuz now collected. In addition, the Egyptians were good troops. They were the remnants of the Khorizmian Turkish forces and troops from the Ayubite Prince of Karak. On the 26th of July, the Egyptian army crossed the frontier and marched on Gaza with Baibars leading the vanguard. There was a small Mongol force at Gaza under the general Baidar. He sent to warn Kitbuka of the invasion, but before help could arrive, his men were overwhelmed by the Egyptians. Kitbuka, meanwhile, while was at Baalbek, he prepared at once to march down past the Sea of Galilee into the Jordan Valley, but he was held up by a rising of Muslims in Damascus. Christian houses and churches were destroyed and Mongol troops were needed to restore order. Meanwhile, Kutuz decided to march up the Palestinian coast and strike inland further north to threaten Kitbuka's communications if he advanced into Palestine. An Egyptian embassy was sent, therefore, to Acre to ask for permission to pass through Crusader territory and to obtain provisions on the march, if not indeed active military aid. The Crusader barons met together at Acre to discuss the request. They were feeling bitter against the Mongols owing to the recent sack of Sidon and they were distrustful of this oriental power with its record for wholesale massacre. Islamic civilization was familiar to them and most of them even preferred the Muslims to the native 
Christians to whom the Mongols showed such favour, they were at first inclined to offer the Sultan some armed auxiliaries. But the Grand Master of the Teutonic Order warned them that it would be unwise to trust the Muslims very far, especially if they were to become elated by victory over the Mongols. The Teutonic Order had many possessions in the Armenian kingdom and they appreciated King Hetum's policy with the Mongols. His prudent words had some effect. The military alliance was rejected, but the Sultan was promised free passage and provisioning for his army. During August, the Sultan led his army up the coast road and encamped for several days in the orchards around Acre. Several of the emirs were invited to visit the city as honoured guests, and amongst them was Baibars, who on his return to the camp suggested to Kutuz that it would be easy to take the place by surprise. But Kutuz was not ready to be so treacherous, nor to risk crusader reprisals while the Mongols were still unbeaten. The crusaders grew somewhat embarrassed by the number of their visitors, but were consoled by a promise that they should be allowed to buy at reduced prices the horses that would be captured from the Mongols. While he was at Acre, Kutuz learned that Kitbuka had crossed the Jordan and had entered eastern Galilee. He at once led his army south eastward through Nazareth and on the 2nd of September he reached Ein Jalud, the Pools of Goliath, where the Christian army had defied Saladin in 1183. Next morning the Mongol army appeared. The Mongol cavalry was accompanied by Georgian and Armenian contingents, but Kitbuta lacked scouts and the local population was unfriendly. He did not know that the whole Mamluk army was close by. Kutus was well aware of his own superiority in numbers. He therefore hid his main forces in the hills nearby and only exposed the vanguard led by Baibars. Kutbuka fell into the trap. He charged at the head of all of his men into the enemy that he saw before him. Baibars retreated into the hills, hotly pursued, and suddenly the whole Mongol army found itself surrounded. Kitbuka fought superbly. The Egyptians began to waver and Kutuz entered the battle himself to rally them. But after a few hours, the superior numbers of the Mamluks made their effect. Some of Kitbuka's men were able to cut their way out, but he refused to survive his defeat. He was almost alone when his horse was killed and he himself was taken prisoner. His capture ended the battle. He was taken bound before the Sultan, who mocked him at his fall. He answered defiantly, prophesying a fearful vengeance on his victors and boasting that he, unlike the Mamluk emirs, had always been loyal to his master. The Mamluk struck off his head. The Battle of Ain Jalud was one of the most decisive in history. It is true that owing to events that had occurred 4,000 miles away, the Mongol army in Syria was too small to be able, without great good fortune, to undertake the subjection of the Mamluks. It is also true that had a greater army been quickly sent after the disaster, the defeat might have been reversed. But the contingencies of history forbade the reversal of the decision made at Ain Jalud. The Mamluk victory saved Islam from the most dangerous threat that it has ever had to face. Had the Mongols advanced into Egypt, there would have been no great Muslim state left in the world east of Morocco. The Muslims in Asia were far too numerous ever to be eliminated completely, but they would no longer have been the ruling race. Had Kitbuka, the Christian, triumphed, the Christian sympathies of the Mongols would have been encouraged and the Asiatic Christians would have come into power. 
It is idle to speculate about what might have happened. The historian can only relate what did, in fact, occur. Ein Jalud made the Mamluk Sultanate of Egypt the chief power in the Near East for the next two centuries until the rise of the Ottoman Empire. It also completed the ruin of the native Christians of Asia by strengthening the Muslim and weakening the Christian element in Asia. It was soon to induce the Mongols that remained in Western Asia to embrace Islam, and it hastened the extinction of the Crusader states, for as the Teutonic Grand Master foresaw, the victorious Muslims would now be eager to crush the Crusaders. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd be really grateful if you wanted to recommend it to a friend or leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear how Sultan Baibars would lead the Mamluks to new victories. (laughs) 